The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Let's take our Bibles now and open to Exodus chapter 28. And our study this, this, this afternoon is our final lesson on the garments of the priest. This is the clothing of the high priest, the garments that are made for glory and for beauty. And they reflect both of those aspects of Jesus Christ. And these clothes were, in fact, beautiful garments because they were made by the most talented workmen, men that were gifted by God to make them. And they were made from the best materials. And so what you have is in an art form, you might say, uh, a way of reflecting the majesty of God. And it seems a little bit strange that we would think of Christ, that Christ would be pictured by this beautiful clothing when in in his human form. In Christ's life on this earth, he was anything but regal. Uh, he, he dressed like a, like a commoner. He never dressed in fine clothing. He wasn't recognized as a great man because of the clothes that he wore. And I suppose that we should learn this well, that old saying that clothes don't make the man. Fine clothing will never dignify a bad man. And it certainly didn't the high priest who wore these very same clothes when as they were condemning Jesus at a mock trial and then sent him to the cross. Uh, neither did expensive clothing dignify the Pharisees, who uh, broadened the borders of their expensive garments as a show of piety, and they proved themselves to be anything but holy. So in the clothing, we don't really see very much of the humanity of Christ, and in the full dress of the high priest, we might not see how the priest could represent the lowly Jesus. We only see one side as... Uh, in some ways, and that is the divine side of Christ. And it's not until we begin to break down the meaning of each of these articles of clothing that we see Christ as the beautiful man or the perfect man who is an example of what every person should be. Christ is termed the second Adam, and he is called Adam, which means man, and that's because of his humanity. He was a man in the original moral character that God created man, that is man in innocence without any guilt of sin. And then he is called the second Adam because he is a representative as the first Adam was. And I'd like to show you this for just a moment in the book of Romans. Uh, This is good introductory material for us. So if you'll turn to Romans chapter 5, Paul is dealing here with the doctrine of justification and he's just been through three chapters explaining the the universal sinfulness of man and the need to be reconciled to God. And in the fourth chapter, he introduced justification by faith, using the example of Abraham. And then in the twelfth verse of the fifth chapter, he says that Adam's sin passed to the rest of the world. Romans 5.12, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. And going down to verse number 16, And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift, for the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. 
So the one sin, that was Adam, and that sin of Adam's brought condemnation on the whole world. Paul said the same in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, where he said, he explained that in Adam all die. And then in Romans 5, 19, he said, For by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. Now, what we have in these verses that I've read is proof that Adam was a representative. Adam is termed the federal head of humanity. And so in one sense, all of us are unified in Adam. Adam was tried by God, and through his representation, all of us have been tried. Uh, there was only one man that was created. The rest of us are not uniquely created. When a, when a baby is born, a baby is not a new creation, but is a continuation of humanity. And the reason that you and I were not put into the Garden of Eden to, to stand trial is because that's already been done. That's been done in the one man that God created. And it wouldn't do good, any good, for God to put you and me into the Garden of Eden to see what we will do because we're already infected with the sinful nature. So we are a continuation of humanity, and humanity has fallen because of we have fallen in that representative. But we call Jesus the second Adam because he is also a representative. He represents the new creation, those who are made new creatures in him by faith. And so in verses 17 through 21 of Romans 5, we, we see Christ as the representative of the faithful. For if by one man's offense death reign by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Many were made sinners in Adam. And the scripture says many are made righteous in Christ. Again, 1 Corinthians 15.22 says, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. So the second Adam represents a class, those that are made righteous and holy through justifying and sanctifying grace. And to be the, the representative of the righteous... Uh, Jesus could not be from Adam's seed. And that's because the sinful nature follows this path of transmission of, from one person to another. And so the second Adam is not a sinner. He is perfectly righteous. Now righteousness is one of those things that's been pictured in the priest's clothing on several occasions. Uh, most notably, it, it's pictured by the fine white linen that was, uh, and then indirectly by some of the other articles of clothing, White stands for purity, and Christ is pure. 
These things are seen in the types. Whether we speak of the righteousness of men or righteousness of Christ, we go to places of Scripture and we learn these things, that the white and uh, white linen and so forth stands for righteousness. So that meaning is found in other places of, of Scripture. For example, in Isaiah and Revelation, the uh, clothing is very clearly indicative of righteousness in those passages. But when we come to this article of clothing that we want to discuss tonight, this last one in our study, there's nothing here that obscures the type. In other words, we don't have to search other scriptures to try and find out the meaning of what this is. Oh, and this is the golden plate that is on the headgear, headgear of the priest. Now the next part of your outline, and uh, I have number six on this, and I, I'm just checking out with... Uh, uh, Randy there and Linda a minute ago about what number we're supposed to be on. And I'm not sure that we haven't been on number six about five times now. <laughs> Once these uh, outlines get so long, we've, and I mean that we've gone through several weeks of study, I think maybe this is supposed to be number seven in the outline. But whatever it is, uh, this is what we're going to discuss tonight. We're going to talk about the plate of gold, which is, stands for the holiness of Christ. Now we see the meaning of it very clearly in verse number 36 in Exodus 28. And thou shalt make a plate of pure gold and grave upon it the engravings of a signet, holiness to the Lord. I will show you a, a picture and it might not be as clear as we want it to be in the picture from wherever you're sitting. But you can see on the headband there's writing on it and it's engraved and it says holiness to the Lord. Now there isn't any mistake what this part of the headpiece is in typology. Of course this, this was to relate to the priest on a personal level in his work that everything that he did was to be done in holiness and the work that he did was holy and he did the work of making sacrifices. He did what others couldn't do because of God's holiness. You see, God is, God is too holy to be approached without an offering for sin. And then he's the priest of offering as well, picturing Christ making himself a sacrifice and then standing in for the people to intercede with God on their behalf. And so if we miss any other picture of Christ when we talk about all these different types, because maybe we just don't understand all the scriptures that we need to go to that explain all of this, it's almost impossible to miss this one. It's right here in the text that a priest must be holy because he does the work of the holy God. And that priest, of course, represents Christ. And that tells us that he is the Holy One. This is what the Father demands. He demands holiness. And God cannot be approached in any other way. The Scripture says, Holiness without which no man shall see God. A few weeks ago, we had a, a sermon on the introduction to the Philadelphia church in Revelation uh, chapter 3. Philadelphia was the blessed church. That is the church that I said that we want to be. And in the beginning of that letter, Jesus opened with, These things saith he that is holy. That's an Old Testament description that can't be said by anyone other than God. Now, I want you to remember that in these scriptures, Israel, I mean, in Exodus, Israel had not long been acquainted with God. They were formalized as a nation with government upon receiving the law at Sinai. Chapter 28, where we read here, is 
the law just now being opened up to reveal all of these other parts to it, parts that we've examined in this series of messages. Moses explained the law. He just received it on the mountain. And here they are setting up this system of worship that's given in that law that Moses received. But before this, Israel was not very well acquainted with God. They'd just been through 200 years of slavery in Egypt where they were exposed to the false religion of Egyptian gods. And there were some of them that were still worshipers, but they were few. And I don't think that we could say that their understanding of God was very well developed. As you know, there was a mixed multitude that came out of Egypt when they left and We've, we know the trouble that this mixed multitude caused. And so when Moses spoke to God at the burning bush, this is before, of course, Israel was set free from their bondage, uh, God revealed who he was uh, to Moses. The Israelites didn't know God's name. That seems very strange, but they didn't know God's name. And Moses had to ask, when I speak to the people and I tell them uh, your plan, that you're going to get them out of Egypt, who shall I say sent me? This is the conversation that takes place in Exodus chapter 3. If you want to go back to it, in uh, Exodus three thirteen and 14. And Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel, and shall say unto them, The God of your fathers hath sent me unto you, and they shall say to me, What is his name? What shall I say unto them? And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am has sent me unto you. And then if you want to go over to the sixth chapter in verse number three. And I appeared unto Abraham, unto Isaac, and unto Jacob by the name of God Almighty. But by my name Jehovah was I not known unto them. Now, if you'll give me that picture again, Joshua, go back there just for a second. If you'll look at the lettering on that golden plate, and in our text, you see capitalized L-O-R-D, Lord. In Hebrew, that's called the Tetragrammaton. And what does that mean? It means I am that I am. And so the priests wore God's name, the name that just a brief time before they didn't even know. Well, let's think about that for just a minute. What is the most significant thing that they learned about the God who said, I am well, they learned that he was different. Moses came to them with announcement that this is the God who wants you out of Egypt. This is the God that has claimed you. This is the God who is the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And when Moses told them, they were skeptical. And I would say they were more than skeptical. They thought it couldn't happen. Now, we speak of Pharaoh's mockery of God, but the Israelites weren't much better in their faith. In ten plagues, God demonstrated his power to make it happen that they would be set free. But in each one of those plagues until the last, they, they still doubted. God trounced the Egyptian gods. The plagues were designed to attack Egypt's beliefs at each level of their gods that they worshipped. And in each of those plagues, their gods were defeated. But the euphoria of the defeat didn't last very long because in each of those Pharaoh refused to let the people go. And then finally, in the last plague, they said, well, we better go. This is the death of the firstborn. And their lives were threatened just as much as the Egyptians. 
Because without their compliance to do what God said, they would die just as the Egyptians did. And so when it was time to go out, they went out with reluctance. Very soon, Pharaoh's army pursued. God intended to use that pursuit as an occasion to punish Pharaoh. But Israel didn't know it. They couldn't see it. Here they are pinned up against the Red Sea and they have no way to cross it. And they have Pharaoh's army bearing down on them. And what did they say? Did they say to Moses, Moses, would you please plead with God to deliver us again? No, they didn't say that. They didn't have any hope in God. So they said, why did you bring us here? Did you bring us here to die? But what did God intend to show them? He is different. He is God above all gods. And in a display of his difference, he drowned Pharaoh and his armies in the sea. Now, we'll turn back to chapter 15 in Exodus. This is immediately afterward. Moses sang a song of praise to the Lord. And in verses 10 and 11 of this song that has many stanzas, this is what Moses sang. Thou didst blow with thy wind, the sea covered them. They sank as lead in the mighty waters. Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like unto thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? Do you see the Lord is glorious in holiness? Then the psalmist wrote in Psalm 99, verse 9, Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy hill, for the Lord our God is holy. When we studied the structure of the Bible in the fundamentals class, we learned that Psalm 99 belongs to the fourth book of the Psalter, which corresponds to Numbers, which is the fourth book of Moses. The five divisions of the Psalter correspond to the Pentateuch, which is the five books of Moses. So Numbers is the story of Israel in the wilderness. And the fourth book of the Psalter begins in Psalm 90, which is a psalm of Moses. Listen to verse number 2 in Psalm 90. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hadst formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. God is the everlasting God. And he is different because he is the God who made all things. He is before every pretended God. Now let me show you something interesting in, in the Revelation now, if you'll go to Revelation chapter 15 all the way to the end of the Bible, they're singing in heaven. And we wonder, what might they sing in heaven? What is the heavenly, heavenly song? Well, Handel would say, well, of course, they sing the Hallelujah Chorus. That's what he would say. He wrote the Messiah with many quotations from Isaiah and Revelation. But look at this song. I know that this is a song they sing in heaven. Uh, Revelation 15 verse 1 And I saw another angel another sign rather in heaven great and marvelous seven angels having the seven last plagues for in them is filled up the wrath of God and I saw as it were a sea of glass mingled with fire and them that had gotten the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name stand on the sea of glass having the harps of God listen to verse 3 and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. 
Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou only art holy. And you might want to underline that in your Bible. It's very important, and you'll see it in just a second. For thou only art holy. For all nations shall come and worship before thee, for thy judgments are made manifest. For thou only art holy. In the letter to the Philadelphia church, Jesus said, These things saith he that is holy. Revelation 15 says the God that delivered Moses is the only one who is holy. So what does that make Jesus? He is the only God. He's the one in Psalm 90 who is the everlasting God. How many ways can the Bible tell us this? I mean, how, how could any Christian, indeed if that person is a Christian, how would he ever defend an interfaith dialogue? What for? That's a waste of time. There is no God but our God. And either you believe that or you suffer the consequences of rejecting the Holy Lord. A flirtation with other gods is no different than sitting with Pharaoh and his puny gods. Now we go back then to the priest garments. The New Testament leaves us no doubt that the priest of the Old Testament was a type of Christ. He represents the second Adam. And so when the priest put this golden plate on his head in a type, he shouted that Christ is the great high priest of God. Now let me give you three symbolisms of the golden plate on the mitre. Now last week we, we discussed that the hat that the priest wore stands for the obedience of Christ, that in his humanity he became obedient to the Father, that he stepped down from his exalted position in heaven for a time, and he became a servant. A hat on the head is a symbol of that submission, and so on that hat we now see the dual nature of Christ, that he was submissive, but he was also God. So first we see that the plate is the deity of Christ. Gold is a symbol of deity. Gold represents that which is most valuable, at least in the ancient world, the most valuable thing that you could get your hands on would be gold. Kings were the more splendored by the amount of gold they had. King Solomon was admired by the world and by all kings and people because of his gold. And he might not have received as much acclaim for his wisdom, which was, of course, integral to Solomon's person and what God had done for him, but he might not have received as much uh, acclaim for wisdom if he had not been a rich man. Most people didn't think that the poor were very wise at all, so it's the gold that set him apart, so much so, in his kingdom, so much gold in his kingdom that nobody paid attention to silver. Silver was like rocks on the ground. In Solomon's kingdom, if you came across silver under your feet, you just kick it away. Because that was nothing compared to the gold that Solomon had. So a man has nothing compared to Solomon if he has silver. Gold is kingship. The everlasting king is Jesus Christ. And so how would they show the deity of Christ in the tabernacle. Well, it's gold. It's gold that's used in multiple places. Wooden boards that are overlaid with gold. The Ark of the Covenant itself is a wooden box that is overlaid with gold. And what does it stand for? Well, it stands for humanity and deity. Christ was man and Christ was God. 
And so the golden plate that's put on the mitre offsets the submission. And so we see both aspects of Christ. He is both God and man. Then secondly, the plate is the mind of Christ. The plate is on the forehead. Now when you're in deep thought, what do you do? You know, often I'll take my fingers and rub my forehead or pinch my forehead. I mean, that's the place where all the processes are going on, where we grapple with profound parts of Scripture. It's where decisions are made, what to do, what not to do, how to act, what we're supposed to do next. The mind, of course, is the center of learning and intellect, and it's the mind where cognizance of God takes place. So then what is to occupy our minds? What are we to have in our thoughts? Well, there isn't a better place for us to go than Psalm 119 to get our advice. 176 verses of Psalm 119 are about the value of God's Word. That the Word is the guidebook for our lives. It's the Word that teaches us. Through it we get understanding, that's verse 104. The Word is a a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, that's 105. The Word cleanses us, that's verse 9. And then on and on you can go, and many, many verses, verses are found the virtues of the Word. And when the psalm starts out, what does it say the blessed man does? It says that he meditates on the Word day and night. And what does the Word teach us? It teaches the mind of Christ. And the mind of Christ for you and I is servanthood. Psalm 2 verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And of course, Paul continues in that passage to speak of the obedience of Christ, the servant. So the mind of Christ in this aspect is to be a holy servant. Now let's return to to holiness, as we discussed it in that sermon on Philadelphia. Holiness means to be set apart. Holiness means to be different. And as God, Christ is different from everyone in every way. Most often, holiness is connected with morality, although it does cover different aspects of God as well. So when God tells us to be holy, it's morality, how, how we act uh, towards each other, uh, our, our morality, that's what concerns God. So he expects us to be different from the world that is around us. We're related to the second Adam, Jesus Christ from above, whose moral rectitude is unquestioned. He is the man who has no sin. And so when the priest put on the headband, he had this constant reminder that what God always expects from me is holiness. Now the New Testament tells us that each of us as a believer in Christ is a royal priesthood. And so what do you suppose should be on our headband? Our responsibilities are even greater than what we read here in the Old Testament because you and I know more about God than they knew. We have the New Testament. We have the New Testament that tells us about Christ and explains the Old Testament type. And so we also, in a greater degree, have this requirement of holiness to the Lord. None of you escapes that because you're not the pastor. Each of you is a priest. You might not be required to stand behind this pulpit, but you have been washed in the blood of Christ. And the Word says you have been bought with a price. First Corinthians, for ye are bought with a price. 
Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. A sacrifice has been made for you. You are sanctified. That's the root of holiness. So make no mistake about this, that when you read pastoral requirements in the New Testament, and when you read diaconate requirements in the New Testament, be aware that that, those are requirements for all Christians. The division between clergy and laity, the supposed division, obscures that. But if there is a division, it was never intended to be a moral division. There is no division in the Bible where you find holy Christians and less holy Christians. We're all supposed to be holy Christians. So maybe you'll never stand behind a pulpit, but you're to be holy as if you were required to. And there are no excuses that are accepted. The only difference between you and me is location. Both of us are servants of Jesus Christ. The only difference between you and me is the location of our work. So your mind is to be trained as mine. You are to be trained and flooded with the Word of God because Christ is the living Word. And to have His Word is to have Him. But most of us are guilty of uh, filling our minds with other stuff, too much other stuff. TV, sports, our hobbies, travel, whatever it might be. And we're filled up with many, many other things, but not Christ. Now, He is in there somewhere. He's there somewhere, but He's not up front. He's not on the forehead where He should be. And so when we make decisions, very rarely are our decisions with Christ in the forefront. If I do this, how will this affect Christ? If I do this, how will it affect my testimony for Christ? If I do this, how will this affect my church and my service to the Lord? And so when Christ is in the middle, or He's in the back of our minds, He's not where He should be. And if He's not up front, whose name is on the golden plate? Why, that name is mine. Or that name is yours. And that makes us God, not Him. Would you call that holiness? Well, that's not much different from the world, is it? Their mind's not on Christ either, is it? The God that nobody wants to get rid of is self. I could go on and on about that, and I have. Most churches today are temples of self-worship. And you know whose names have the title of high priest in those churches? But the mind of Christ is the mind that you must have if you want to see God. Now let me just give you a scripture on that among many, many scriptures that are available. If you'll turn to Colossians chapter 3. This chapter begins with instructions on what we are to do with self. And if I ask you, what are you to do with yourself? You're not going to like my answer. My answer will be the Bible's answer. What are you to do with self? Kill it. Do what? Kill it. Mortify the flesh. Put it to death. Why? Because of verse number 3. You are dead. That's dead to sin. And your life is hid with Christ in God. Now let's go down to verse number 12. Colossians 3 verse 12. Put on therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, Forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, 
Even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also ye are called in one body, and be ye thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. What you have there is a fairly good synopsis of the mind of Christ. This is how he thought, and this is what he did. So the Bible tells us, go and do likewise. Now thirdly, about this plate, the plate is the counsel of Christ. The priest was a leader. He went behind the veil on that one day of the year to commune with God. Now we go back to our text in Exodus 28 and verse number 37. Exodus 28 verse 37. And thou shalt put it on a blue lace. That is, put this, this golden plate. Put it on a blue lace that it may be upon the miter. Upon the forefront of the miter it shall be. And it shall be upon Aaron's forehead, that Aaron may bear the iniquity of the holy things, which the children of Israel shall hallow in all their holy gifts, and it shall be always upon his forehead, that they may be accepted before the Lord. Blue lace, that's important, because blue lace, blue is the heavenly color. And that's to show that the counsel the priest receives is from the mind of God who is in heaven. So Aaron bore the iniquity of holy things, that is, things that are consecrated by heaven above. So the people would bring their gifts and their sacrifices, but they weren't allowed to offer them. They could bring them, but they can't offer. They can't go directly to God. So all these things have to be handed over to Aaron, who bore their iniquities. And so it was his job to convert the profane that they brought him to holiness through the sacrifice. Now, of course, we know this is exactly what Christ did. Uh, he took our sins through the offering of the blood of the cross, and he washed away all of our iniquities. So anything that's brought to Aaron in transgression, he can take away with his intercession before God. And so anything that we bring to Christ by his intercession, by his continual acts of intercession, he is able to make holy. So he takes what you are and he transforms you from what you are into the holiness that's required for you to see God. Now here's another picture of Christ in the plate. That Christ is wisdom and counsel. Isaiah 9.6 is a prophecy of the Messiah that says that he will be called Wonderful Counselor. Was there ever a counselor like Jesus? Did he always give the best advice? What did Jesus say to sinners? Well, he started out, he said, unless you repent, you will perish. So he said, repent. Then Jesus said, have faith. You believe in God, believe also in me. Then Jesus said, go to work. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. That's good counsel. You do those things and you'll never fail. The apostles also learned the mind of Christ and they gave good counsel. If you'll turn to Second Peter chapter 1, uh, a pastor must be a good counselor, and Peter was a good pastor. If only the other popes were as good as him. 
would we be fine? That's a joke for you, folks. Second uh, Peter chapter one, verse number five. 2 Peter one, verse five. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind, and cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You ever thought about this? Do you want to make a splash with your entrance into heaven? Here's good advice. Do these things and you won't fall on your face. You won't trip on the steps when you go in. You'll enter into heaven with your head bowed low, but your feet stepping high. Well, let me finish our study of the garments with this thought. We've covered all of the garments. We've gone from inside out. We've gone from the top to the bottom. We've gone all the way down to the feet. But wait just a minute. We haven't talked about feet, have we? That's kind of interesting. You know, the Pope, the high priest of Catholicism, wears dainty red slippers. But God says nothing about the feet. So I've looked at scriptures. I've looked through all of this that we've been studying. I've looked at all of the illustrations that I've shown you. None of them show the priest anything but barefoot. So I thought, well, why don't we just run through some of the pictures that we've seen. And these come right out of the Bible. I, mean, I don't mean I cut them out of the Bible, but they come from the descriptions that we have in the Bible. So let's see the first one. They're just barely down at the bottom. You see the length of the high priest's robe. What about his feet? Hmm, barefoot. Next one. There we get a closer picture of that. Barefoot. Next. Uh, barefoot. As he's being anointed. Next. Standing before the altar of incense inside the tabernacle. Barefoot. Next. Spreading the blood of the ram around the altar. Barefoot. Next. That's Nadab and Abihu were consumed uh, by God with fire for offering strange incense and they're barefoot. Next. Oh, I thought we had another one. Well, I'll tell you what the next one was. Uh, it was a picture of the priest laying his hands on the head of the scapegoat. And we're going to study scapegoat just a little bit later. And that picture, if you were able to see it, would show the priest barefoot. Well, we've got to think. Is there, is there some spiritual significance to this? Well, I've said many times in our study that God is very precise. So are we to think that God decked out the high priest and, oh, no, I forgot his feet. What are, what are we going to do about the feet? So what can we learn by a barefoot priest? Well, I think we might extrapolate that the priest was clothed beautifully and he was a very special man, but he was still a man. And when a king puts on his costly garments... He doesn't walk around barefoot like the servants do. We're still servants, aren't we? And so the priest, clothed beautifully, was to remember that he's a man dressed in 
God's clothing. And so while on earth, as righteous as we can be, we still have sinful feet that stick out. Luther said, justified but sinful. And yes, we are. Justification is not a change in moral character. Justification is a change in our legal standing. Sanctification is the part of us that addresses morality. And as long as we're in the body, we are not entirely sanctified. And we ought not to think that we are. And there are some who believe that. I'm holy. I'm more righteous than you. And when we start to think like that, we start to use righteousness as a club. Oh, we're members of this righteous club. This is what the Pharisees did. They used a righteous club that beat others into submission. This is what happens when you have rules-based ministries. They use them as a club. Man-made Rules are in addition to the word, and they become rules of judgment, and they're ruled, they're used rather to keep people in submission. So the heart's not touched by that. It's the outward form that gets, gets re- reformed. Perhaps that's part of the picture. We're clothed in garments of righteousness, but we're never to forget that our feet still touch the ground. We may be saved by the grace of God, and thank God that we can sit here tonight and talk about this as, as Christians believing in Jesus Christ, but our, our, our lives, our, what we are in ourselves, we are not better than any other person that's out there. We are saved only by the grace of God. It is Christ that makes the difference in us, not us. And then there's another thought that occurs to me, the dichotomy of, Christ as man and God in the golden plate of deity on the headband and in submission to man. Perhaps the priest didn't wear shoes because with the beauty and the glory of God, Christ himself will always be manifested as a man. Oh, I covered that the last time, that when we get to heaven, how are we going to see God? Will we see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit who are All spirits, spirits are unseen. But we shall see them all manifested in the flesh of Jesus Christ. He is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And so this body of Christ is never going away. How was he raised? In a body. How did he ascend into heaven? In a body. He is in heaven glorified but still a body. A body that's typical of the body that we will receive. So we will see him and be as he is. God made the first Adam a man of flesh. The flesh itself is not sinful. I've explained that many times. Your human flesh, that's not a sinful thing. It's been infected because and it dies because of sin. But God didn't create flesh and say, well, flesh is bad. Flesh is sinful. No, it's made that way by the fall of Adam. But now we have the flesh of the second Adam. That's a flesh that can be glorified. Sinless flesh in heaven. And so when the priest made a sacrifice for his own sins, he stood justified and he could represent Christ as the perfect man, clothed in garments of glory and beauty with feet that are of perfect flesh. So Christ is perfect man and perfect God. And you'll not see him unless you're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The story of the rich man and 
Lazarus is a contrast that shows this. In Luke 16, 19, there was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. Have you thought about why that story just talk, starts out talking about how this man is clothed? He's clothed in purple and fine linen. There's a contrast in the scripture. Those are clothes that are not good enough to see God. Those are not consecrated clothes. On the other hand, you have Lazarus, who is a beggar. He's covered with sores, and he wore clothes that are soiled with blood and pus. And what's the difference between him and the rich man? Well, the outward clothing, look at that, that's obvious. But it's the inward clothing that's the most important. Lazarus was clothed with garments of salvation, and those are clothes that are glorious and beautiful. Those are the clothes that you need to see the Lord in heaven. And the Bible teaches if you repent and you believe, you'll see him. You'll see the one whose feet touch the ground of humanity, but lives for eternity. You'll see it if you're clothed with garments of glory and beauty. Blessed be God for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you thanking you for your word. Thanking you, Lord, for uh, these many, many weeks of study about the garments of the priest and how they are such beautiful pictures of you. Lord, everything that we study in the Word of God is going to point us in some way to you. And that's what we want to know. How can we be more like Christ than it is, as we've explained tonight, to be sanctified, holy, having received the righteous garments of Jesus Christ, perfect man, and perfect God. Bless us, Lord. We thank you for everyone who's been here tonight to hear the word of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.